What we'll be looking at this morning is um, one of the ways in which God will uh, do his correcting work that he spoke of uh, in the preceding verses where God chastens us and corrects us because he loves us. Uh, part of how he does that is explained here in uh, the first part of verse 14 uh, in simply giving the command to pursue peace. Uh, notice what he says there again in verse 14. Pursue peace with all people and holiness without which no one will see the Lord looking carefully lest any one fall short of the grace of God lest any root of bitterness spring up cause trouble and by this many become defiled uh, notice there the command again to pursue peace the idea there uh, just like you might suspect of pursuing something uh, I think we've all got uh, a variety of pursuits in our life um, things that we want to do, things that we're trying to understand or uh, something we're trying to keep up with, uh, hobbies or you know, goals that we have at work, goals that we have at home. Uh, if you're a homeowner, uh, you may have the pursuit of living in a house that's not falling apart. Um, that's at least my experience as home ownership thus far. Uh, I was encouraged uh, by uh, an older friend of mine, uh, a man I was discipling who uh, was old enough to be my dad and I had just bought my house and I was gung-ho on fixing everything so I could be done working on my house. And I was over visiting him and he was, as he was working on his house. Uh, and I realized he had been in his house for longer than I had been alive. <laughs> and he was still working on it. And it, it, re, it dawned on me in that moment that I'm never going to be done with this. Uh, this is going to be like laundry and dishes. It's just, it's not, I'm now done. It's just, I, I'm done for now until the next thing comes up. And uh, a pursuit of peace is much like that. Uh, there's no uh, finish line to that pursuit uh, until we're no longer alive. That's a, a continual, ongoing uh, pursuing, uh, just like the pursuit of holiness will be. The, the pursuit of peace with all people is a pursuit, a pursuit that is a seeking after uh, that will require you to continually to seek after. Uh, there's not going to be a finish line on this side of uh, eternity for us. But notice that he, he gives the command as a pursuit. Uh, the command to pursue indicates that it will not always be possible to obtain peace with everybody. Even though he's saying to pursue peace with everybody, uh, if you've lived long enough, you understand that it's not always possible to live at peace with everybody. In fact, this is what the Apostle Paul tells the Romans in Romans chapter 12, verse 18. He says, if it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. Uh, this is a guy who, on, on a regular basis, caused riots <laughs> in the different towns he would go to preaching the gospel. Uh, and, and he'd preach until people either all got saved or all got upset enough with him because he was a folk, uh, affecting the local idol economy that they're like, we need to get this guy out. And, and he's, he's the one who's saying, live at peace as much as depends on you with all people. And that doesn't mean that I'm going to compromise the gospel, um, but that, that means I'm going to pursue peace as much as it depends on me. Uh, later on in the book of Romans, you would write uh, a good exhortation, I think, for all of us. This was a memory verse of mine a couple weeks back uh, in Romans fourteen nineteen. He says, therefore, let us pursue the things which make for peace and the things by which one may edify 
another. And I think this is getting closer to the thought of what he's saying when he's saying to pursue peace with all people. Uh, the pursuit of peace uh, implies that the default setting that we have with other people is not peaceful. Uh, I have three boys, the default setting amongst them, not peace. <laughs> right? Uh, if you've been in, a, in, if you're a man who goes to work with a bunch of men, default setting, not peace. It's just like name calling and you know whatever we're doing to cut each other down, and just like that's that's the default setting. That's why peace must be pursued. We pursue peace by doing three different things with regard to how we handle sin in our own life and handle sin in the life of others, because there is no peace in our lives because of the presence of sin. And that's the problem. There was peace universally and worldwide before the fall. Before sin entered in, uh, it was all good. God looked at each relationship, man's relationship with his wife, uh, mankind's relationship with the world, uh, just everything, it was peaceful. That's what it was. And that is what it will be one day the Bible says that uh, when the Prince of Peace comes again, and that's when there will be peace, uh, no matter what you know, politician you like to listen to, uh, always promising different peace of different kinds, uh, there's only going to be peace when the Prince of Peace comes and rules and reigns. And it's going to be to the extent that you'll, you'll have a nursery of little kids playing with cobras, and it'll be fine. <laughs> because that's the extent to which God's peace will affect not just only our relationship with one another, but our relationship even with creation. It will be restored to that once again. And in the meantime, as those who are living underneath that king in this fallen world, his kingdom will come into our lives by that peace being what we pursue with one another. But that peace can't coexist with the sin in my life and the sin in your life if we're going to be at peace with one another so uh, we pursue peace by seeking forgiveness when we have sinned against others. Matthew chapter 5, verses 23 and 24 is quite clear with regard to this. Jesus speaking, he says, Therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar, and there remember your brother has something against you, leave your gift at the altar, go your way, first be reconciled to your brother and then come offer your gift. This is how important it is to the Lord. Do you think the Lord wants to be worshipped? Why, yes. Uh, but your obedience to this command comes before even that offering to the Lord. It's like, I, if, you're, if you know that you have sinned against your brother, you can pursue peace in that relationship by going to them and saying, this is what I did. This is why it was wrong. Will you forgive me? I shouldn't have done this. God says that that was wrong, and I didn't. That attitude, that actions, those words, whatever it is, we pursue peace when we allow God to address the sin in our life that has created a lack of peace between myself and someone else. So we actively pursue peace when we seek forgiveness for the sins that we're aware of that we've sinned against others. Uh, a friend of mine asked me uh, earlier uh, this past week, I think, um, you know, how, 
how do we go about you know confessing our sins one to another and what what's what how do we go what do we do in with regard to that you know how how well known should our forgiveness be or our asking of repentance and my general rule of thumb on this is that our for, um, our request for forgiveness or our confession of sin should be as well known as the sin uh, so not a few weeks ago I made an announcement that our Wednesday night service was at the wrong time. And a, a, a good brother in the Lord reminded me, we don't have service at that time. <laughs> and because my sin was at this scale, <laughs> the repentance for that needed to be at this scale. Because when I told you <laughs> it was at this time and it was at that time, I told you the wrong thing. And I needed to say, hey, what I said was wrong. <laughs> it was not right. And I needed to make my repentance as well known as my sin. And with regard to this, if there's just one brother you've sinned against or one sister that you've sinned against, go to them. You don't have to like, hey, Austin, can I borrow the pulpit? I've got to make an announcement. <laughs> no. Uh, no, you just need to go to that person and tell them out of this obedience of pursuing peace and deal with the sin that's in your own, own heart. The goal, again, in doing that is so that there would be uh, reconciliation. Go and be reconciled. Uh, where there's a need for reconciliation, there is no peace. Secondly, seeking reconciliation from those who have sinned against us. So if on the one hand we've sinned against somebody and we become aware of that, that we've sinned against them, that I've said something, that did something, or had some kind of attitude with somebody that I shouldn't have had, Going to them, being proactive, is pursuing peace for the sin that's in my life. But if on the other end of that, somebody has sinned against you, we are the ones who are also responsible for dealing with that sin. This pursuing of peace looks like us seeking reconciliation with those who have sinned against us. Matthew 18, verse 15. Moreover, uh, Jesus again speaking, moreover, if your brother sins against you, Go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he hears you, you have gained a brother. Again, notice the scale at which this is done. If, it, if it's between the two of you, if he has sinned against you, you don't say uh, on Facebook, this is what this person has done. And you block them, you, you know, unfriend them, and you tell the whole world about this evil thing that they've done to you. <laughs> That's how the world tells you you should handle somebody sinning against you. God says to seek reconciliation by going to them first alone and seeking, again, to gain a brother. Again, what that means is if you're trying to gain a brother, that you've lost a brother. There's no peace that's there. There's a peace in that relationship that's missing. Uh, and this time it wasn't your sin, it was their sin. And yet there's still sin and it still needs to be dealt with. Again, last week when we were looking at it, God deals with the sin in our life because he loves us. And sometimes how he does that is by using another brother or sister in the Lord. We used to have uh, this very silly uh, thing called the friend test when I was in junior high, um, where you would uh, go to your group of friends, friends, because you're, you're questioning all of these things in junior high, and uh, you would intentionally put something on your face. You'd put some mustard above your eyebrow or something ridiculous, and you'd walk up to your group of friends and pretend like you didn't know what was there. And if your friends said something like, hey, 
or your friends, but you look like an idiot right now. I don't know even how you got mustard on the top of your eyebrow. Like, what are you doing? Then you would know that they were really your friends because they loved you enough to correct you. They're like, you look like an idiot. We want to stand next to you, but we don't want to stand next to you with you looking like that. <laughs> they loved you enough to tell you the truth. Um, and scripturally, the, the scriptures say the same thing. The Bible says in the book of Proverbs, chapter 27, faithful are the wounds of a friend, uh, but the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. That means they'll be like, oh, yeah, you look fine. Go ahead and do that class presentation, that you know, school announcement on video <laughs> with the mustard on there. That'd be great. <laughs> That's what an en- enemy would do. A friend would be like, no, <laughs> don't go into public like this. Here's the napkin. I'll wipe it off for you. Right? That's what a friend would do. And that's what somebody who's pursuing peace in a relationship does for someone else, is when there's something there, they address it. Finally, we forgive others when they have sinned against us. We pursue peace by forgiving others when they have sinned against us. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 32 we're told, and be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ Jesus forgave you. Did God pursue peace in his relationship with us? Uh, why, yes, he did. Did he do anything wrong at all? Not at all. Did he do everything in his power to make that relationship right? Absolutely. How did God in Christ Jesus forgive you? While we were yet sinners, Christ died. He paid the price for our forgiveness while we were still sending our brains out, still using his name in vain. How ready was God to forgive us? 100% ready. (laughs) How are we to forgive one another? Do we wait until they're ready to be forgiven? That's not how Christ did it in Jesus. God forgave us in Christ in some ways, before we even were conscious of that we needed to be forgiven of anything. He made us aware of the sin. That was a grace, but he also paid the price for our sin. He has given us forgiveness. It was free to us, but it cost him everything. And sometimes that's what forgiveness feels like. I'm not sure if somebody's sinned against you in some significant way, Um, but if you've lived on the earth long enough, Somebody has sinned against you in some significant way. And forgiving them feels a lot like dying on a cross. But let me tell you the truth. Jesus forgave you more than anything we've ever had to forgive and continues to forgive us. The danger in not pursuing peace is given to us there Uh, towards the end of verse 15. Notice what he says again there at the end of verse 15. If we're not doing this, he says, lest any root of bitterness spring up, cause trouble, and by this many become defiled. Bitterness. That's what happens to sin when it's committed against us and we don't deal with it the way that God tells us to. Bitterness is when we're upset with somebody, and maybe even rightfully so, for sinning against us. They should have done this, and they didn't do it. They didn't do this, and they should have done this. 
it's unfair because of their choice of sin, I have to bear all the consequences for it. We can be bitter uh, toward coworkers. You know, they were super lazy. They didn't do anything. And then I had to do all of this work and I did all of this work and we still got in trouble. And they told the, the boss that I didn't do anything at all. Just angry and bitter. It could be family members. It could be a mom or dad who wasn't there in the way that you wanted them to be. And that, that hurt is there and you're hiding it. Or at least you think you're hiding it. That bitterness is there. But notice what it says about the, the root of bitterness. It springs up. You may think that you're hiding the hurt. But you're not. It's there. And it's, it's causing trouble. It's wreaking havoc. The um, best illustration of this that I can think of is when I was in third grade. Um, third graders aren't super smart. Just prefacing what I, my current actions as a third grader were. Um, it was a Friday, and a friend of mine had given me their chocolate milk, and I thought it would be a great idea to keep it in my desk. And so over the weekend, chocolate milk in a desk is, is not the greatest idea. Um, I thought I could hide it there without anybody noticing. But you know what? On Monday, everybody knew it was there. It, it, had, it had sprung up in a smell <laughs> and an odor that was uh, not pleasant. And when there is sin against us and we don't handle it the way that God tells us to, it's going to spring up. It's going to have a couple of results that are tangible, not just to us, but to those around us. Notice what it says about the root of bitterness, the two effects that it has. It causes trouble and many become defiled by it. This is not some secret private thing anymore. And that's the lie of the enemy with, when it comes to you know, nursing the hurt and keeping it alive in our heart. Uh, another pastor said that um, bitterness is like drinking poison, hoping that it kills the person <laughs> that you're thinking of. It's just destroying you, but it's going to destroy a lot of people around you. There's nothing that works more havoc in the life of a family or um, a church than when there's bitterness unchecked and running free. Not dealing with bitterness gives the devil room to work in our hearts and our lives. Uh, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 26 and 27. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath, nor give place to the devil. It seems like a ridiculous command. Like, I'm telling Christians, don't give the devil any room. <laughs> don't, like, there's not a welcome mat at my house that says, the devil's welcome here, right? And I have that placard above my door, as for me and my house. We will serve, that's what I have. But we can functionally give the devil a welcome mat into our lives when we're angry and sin, when we let the sun go down on our wrath. We've successfully given him room to work in us and through us. First Thessalonians 5.15, it says, See that no one renders evil for evil to anyone, but always pursue what is good for both yourselves and for all. And what that is is just dealing with the sin. Going to the person if you can, 
You know, if you're upset with a parent that's not even alive anymore, the only person that's being hurt by that is you and perhaps your family and perhaps friends that are around you. Perhaps there's a coworker who's not in the, the business anymore, but they, they've done you wrong and you're still nursing that hurt. You think it's hidden, but it's not. It's best for you and for everyone around you that we deal with it biblically. So how do we deal with bitterness biblically? We kind of already mentioned it, but I want to mention it again. Um, we, we mentioned in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 32. I'm going to back it up one verse because it has a little bit of context. Ephesians 4, verse 31 and 32, it says, Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice, and be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as Christ forgave you. It's an either or. Either we are letting bitterness, wrath, anger, and clamor, evil speaking, be with us, or we're putting those things away by putting on kindness, tenderheartedness, and forgiveness. Again, Matthew 18, 15 says, when we're sinned against, the right response is to seek reconciliation from them. But the one thing we can do even before we've done that seeking of reconciliation is to forgive them. He mentions there in verse uh, 15, the beginning of it, looking carefully lest anyone fall short of the grace of God. Uh, another way that could be translated is don't, don't let God out, don't be outdone in giving grace. God has given us so much grace. Uh, in fact, that's the foundation of our salvation. He's going to say at the end of this passage that we are... That we are to have grace. And here he's saying, you know, be careful. Look carefully, lest anyone fall short of that grace. Not just in receiving it, but in giving it out. The grace that God gives us is for us, but it's also for those who sin against us. He knows what it is that we need in our pursuit of peace. We deal with the sin that's in our life, and we deal with the sin of those in the lives around us. Uh, if we're friends long enough, I will sin against you. And if we're friends long enough, you will sin against me. And if we're pursuing peace, we'll be like, hey, don't do that. <laughs> that was hurtful. That was harmful. That didn't bring health. I'm not going to hide this hurt. That hurt. Don't do that. I'm ready to forgive you, and I want our relationship to be reconciled. And again, we're not always in control of whether or not that can happen. But as much as depends on you, pursue peace. The second pursuit that he tells us to pursue really encompasses a lot of what he says after this. Uh, the second main point, and don't worry, I've only got two, um, is the pursuit of holiness. He says, again, in verse 14, pursue peace with all people and holiness. Uh, sometimes we can uh, think of people who are pursuing holiness as those who also regularly uh, suck on lemons their face is always like, and they're always, you know, looking down on you and all of these other, you know, negative connotations of what we would think of holy people. Holy people are people who are being sanctified by the Lord that allow God to correct and direct them, that when people pursue peace with them, they either forgive or receive forgiveness. 
But without holiness, we, we can't see the Lord. And it's really easy to, to share on holiness and be like, oh, I, I'm not holy. If I'll ever see the Lord. Here's the thing. We're, we're saved by grace through faith. Our holiness, our righteous standing before God isn't based upon our works. It's based upon the work that he's already accomplished. But that pursuit of holiness is allowing God to continually work in our lives by allowing the body of Christ to be like, hey, I saw you had some mustard on your forehead today. I'm not sure if this is a test, but I'm going to pass it. I'm your friend. When I'm like, hey, don't do that. That's not good. He gives us an example of what somebody who doesn't pursue holiness looks like. Notice there in verse uh, 16. He says, Let there, uh, Lest there be any fornicator or profane person like Esau, who for one morsel of food sold his birthright. For you know uh, that afterward, when he wanted to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place for repentance, though he sought it diligently with tears. Pursuing holiness means that we value eternal and heavenly things over earthly and temporary things. And this pursuit of holiness, which values eternal and heavenly things over temporal and earthly things, is, uh, has a negative picture in the, the man Esau. Uh, Esau was a fornicator, not in the sense that he was sleeping around, which is the traditional meaning of the word, but here I think it's more used in a uh, metaphorical way in his relationship with the Lord. The Lord wasn't the love of his life. Life was the love of his life doing what he wanted and getting what he wanted when he wanted it was the most important part of his life. He was a profane person. That is, uh, he was a lover of what is unholy rather than what was holy. It was demonstrated in the fact that he sold his birthright, which was a blessing from God. God said, through this line, I'm going to bless the whole nation. That was his right by birth, and he sold that for a lunch. How do you value something like that, devalue something like that? And it was for a lunch, and it was just one lunch. It's not like lunch for the rest of his life. <laughs> his favorite, it was just one lunch. He came in, and he's like, what God has promised, this highly valuable thing, he's like, meh, I think I'd like some red stew. And he valued lunch over the blessings that God would work through him. He only cared about the physical blessings. And he only realized that at the end of his life when he went to get the physical blessing and his father had already given it to his younger brother. Because with the birthright were also physical blessings. There's blessings in walking with the Lord. And then, uh, I'm not sure if you've noticed this, that sometimes the Lord blesses you in unusual ways and your coworkers are like, man, I wish I could ha be that lucky. And I'm like, I'm just being honest and walking with the Lord. And there's, there's fruit that comes from that. There's benefits of living the life that's honest and true and you know, not having to remember all of the lies that you told everybody. And it's just like, I, I, I play with my cards on the table. I don't, I'm not going to lie to you. I'm not going to lie for you. And this is just who I am. This is what I'm going to do. And there's certain blessings that are in that, that somebody who lies about anything and everything can never enjoy. They're like, man, how do you, how do, you, you know, do that? And I'm like, you know, it's a blessing to be able to work hard and go home. A clear conscience and a tired body does wonders for your sleep life. 
And there's a lot of people in the world who have no idea what that kind of rest is like because they don't have a clear conscience. They don't have a tired body. <laughs> and he realizes this at the end of his life, and it wasn't that he wanted the, the heavenly blessings, and so he was truly repentant in a, in a godly sorrow kind of a way. It was a worldly sorrow. He, he saw the physical blessings that he wanted that were a result as a secondary issue from walking with the Lord. And he's like, I still want that. He was, he was upset that he got in trouble, not that he did the wrong thing. That's why when he sought repentance, there was no repentance for him because he just he still wanted the worldly things for worldly purposes, and it wasn't that he was truly repentant. It was a worldly sorrow. He was just upset that he still couldn't enjoy the sin that is passes away. Remember Moses? We, we talked about him a couple weeks ago. Uh, he saw that the, the blessings of sin were temporary. He said, sin is pleasurable for a season, but it passes away. The passing pleasures of sin. He's like, I'm not, I'm, I'd rather suffer now and enjoy God's eternal blessings than the passing pleasures of sin. Esau was the exact opposite. He'd rather enjoy the passing pleasures of sin <laughs> than the eternal rewards from the Lord. So we have in Esau someone uh, who exchanged peace and holiness for immediate and earthly pleasures. He did not pursue peace and he did not pursue holiness. Now he's going to get into a, a short, well, a short, uh, I'll make it short. It's a longer section, verses uh, 18 all the way through uh, verse 24. He describes two different mountains. Uh, a temporal earthly mountain, one that they could go and touch. Uh, notice he says there uh, the physical mountain which is going to pass away, verse 18 through uh, 21. He says, For you have not come to the mountain that may be touched and burned with fire. Um, and he describes what is found in Exodus chapter 19, verses uh, 10 through 25. If you want to read that later on, is when God was giving the law, he put up a perimeter around, God was speaking, it was terrifying. If an animal went up on there, they had to shoot it with an arrow or to throw rocks at it until it died. It was just like this holy event that was terrifying to them. And like it was a, as, as great as an event as that was, that was what they were in danger of going back to, is a physical system of uh, seeking after the Lord. And he's saying, God is, that was the model, and now we have the, the real thing. The real thing that we have is not a, a physical, temporal place that you can go and touch, but verse 22 through 24, it's a heavenly mountain which will last forever. Notice there in verse 22, again, he says, but you have come to the mount, but you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. And he describes it in this fabulous way of angels and brothers and sisters in Christ and just this holy, awesome, eternal, and not physically here and now kind of a thing. And he's saying uh, at the end of that, there's, there's going to be a sifting of temporal things and eternal things. Uh, and we can confuse those things sometimes because of how in our face life is. Um, I did this exercise with uh, some junior hires a long time ago when I was a junior high youth pastor. Uh, is, is this good? Was the question. And uh, we, for fun, used uh, a taco because youth group was on Tuesday nights that night. So I was thinking Taco Tuesday. I was like, is, is a taco good? If it's in front of you right now, like if that's my lunch plans today, that would be, that would be good. Uh, if that, is that same taco good tomorrow? Eh, possibly. 
how about in a year from now? Said, no, I don't, I don't want to see what that's turned into or what's happened to it. Um, what about 100 years from now? What about 100,000 years from now? I was like, well, that's, it, it, it doesn't even exist anymore, I don't think. So if something is good or not, it kind of depends on the time frame you're looking at it from. Is what you have and what you're pursuing good? It depends on the time frame from what you're looking at. The good things that um, the Apostle Paul would describe in each of his letters into the different churches that he's writing to, uh, Ephesians, for instance, he doesn't say, like, you know, God's blessed, blessed us with a six-horse chariot. I'm like, well, that would be kind of cool today, but that's not what he says. He says every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. You know what? That is still just as good today, 2022, as it was when Paul wrote it. You know what? A thousand years from now, still just as good. Only God has the good things, and there's going to be a sifting of the temporal from the eternal. And their danger was going back to temporary things and substituting those temporary things with eternal things. And you cannot pursue holiness while being distracted by the temporary things. The ability to discern between what is good and not good in terms of holiness is often directly tied to exactly how long is it going to last. So pursuing holiness means we value the eternal and heavenly over the earthly and temporary. We're not like Esau. We're like, I, I want lunch more than I want holiness. Pursuing holiness means that when God speaks, we listen. Notice there in verse 25, See that you do not refuse him who speaks. For if they did not escape who refused him who spoke on earth, much more shall we not escape if we, do not, uh, if we turn away from him who speaks from heaven. He's recalling that time when they were on, you know, God was speaking, giving the law on, on Mount Sinai, you know, all this fire, and you, there was strict consequences if you disobeyed those words. Physical death. He's saying there's a greater consequence now, and if they didn't escape the lesser consequence, how are we going to escape the greater consequence? If this sounds familiar, it's something he already said in Hebrews chapter 2 uh, with regard to the messages that we, the, the people of Israel had received through angels and prophets and other people. And he's like, if God held those words true, how much more if we ignore his son? So he puts it in the negative there, verse 25. See that you do not refuse him who speaks. I put it in the positive. Pursuing holiness means that when God is speaking, we're listening. That means when he says something is wrong, we're not like, well, I've got an opinion about that. That means when God speaks, we're, we're not just like hearing what he's saying. Because he, he doesn't just say what I'm saying, because what I'm saying is even a little less than what he's saying. What I'm saying is when God speaks, we listen, but really it should be we listen to him. Notice it's not just his words that are being rejected. It's him we're rejecting. Uh, we had a, a parenting conference this last weekend, and one of the foundations that they had for parents was, you need to determine in your house that God's word and his standard is the standard if you're going to be successful in parenting your way in in a way that's honoring to the Lord. If you're confused on that, that's not gonna, it's, it's gonna be a disaster for everything else that follows. But part of the foundation, his apologetic argument for that is we need to determine that God is smarter than we are. 
know, sometimes as a parent, I have to try to convince my kids who aren't even that old yet that I'm smarter than they are. <laughs> like, why can't I ride my bike in the street without looking both ways? Because I can't find the words to explain to you how dangerous that is. You're just gonna have to listen and obey. Just understand that I'm smarter than you are. And, and sometimes, even though we understand that relationship as parents to our children, we, we say the same thing to the Lord. Lord, how come I can't just, it's fine, it's okay. And the Lord's like, there's a car coming and it's just going to whack you if you are disobedient to me. And it's not just his words that we're refusing when we refuse to hear him, it's him. And we need to determine that God is wiser and smarter than we are and that his standard is good. And that when he speaks, we're listening. It's a struggle for me as a parent to teach my kids that the right response to when my wife is telling them something is yes, mom, or when I'm telling them to do something, it's yes, dad. And I understand that struggle because sometimes when the Lord is telling me to do something, I can come up with the wrong word other than yes, Lord. It's something else. It's something less. They didn't escape the, the judgment for their disobedience. We will not escape if we turn away from him who speaks. And it's his word is good. In that standard of good that I gave earlier, um, we're told in Mark 13, 31, heaven and earth will pass away. Jesus speaking, he says, but my words will by no means pass away. If you want to have a hope that's eternal, put your hope in something that will never pass away, like a taco or owning a home or having a certain job, all of those things, not necessarily bad things, but not eternal things. When our hope is in something that is as immovable and as eternal as God's word, we will be unshakable in our walk. The, the devil cannot touch that. If I put my hope in a home, it can go away. It can be burnt up, it can be taken away, I can have to move away. There's a, a bazillion ways I can lose my home. And if my hope is there, it, I'm gonna lose my hope someday. Guaranteed, 100%. If my hope is in his word, then it won't pass away. It's going to be an eternal hope. We mentioned it at the beginning when he said to, uh, lest anyone fall short of grace, but the last thing that he has to say to us is there in verse 28. Notice again, he, he encourages us to, to have grace. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us have grace, by which we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear, for our God is a consuming fire. That last little bit, our God is a consuming fire, anything that is not of him or from him is going to be burnt up and of no account. And if it was dependent on us to serve the Lord, we would have nothing to show for it at the end of our life. There was a verse that confused me for a long time. It said, let your light so shine before men that when they see your good works, they will glorify your Father in heaven. And I was like, as a young man, how can they see my good works and glorify him? How's that work? Like, I'm the one doing the works. Shouldn't they glorify me? Like, wouldn't that be the, the order that makes sense? Until I understood uh, the biblical definition of good works. And good works, biblically speaking, don't come until after we've received grace. Ephesians 2 8, 9, and 10 tell us that by grace you have been saved through faith and not of yourself. It is the gift of God, 
not of works, lest anyone should boast. That means as Christians, we're not self-made Christians. We didn't earn our salvation. There was work, but it wasn't ours. We received salvation by grace. But then he says the works that we do have, the good works, he, he defines them for us. Uh, whose workmanship we are. We're not our own. Verse 10 in Ephesians chapter 2, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus. Notice, four good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So it's not until after we become saved that we're even doing anything that's good from God's perspective. Uh, my, my boy's memory verse from last week, um, John 15, 5, I believe it is, uh, apart from him we can do nothing. How many things is that? Nothing. Uh, the counter-opposite verse of that in uh, Philippians chapter 4, verse 13, I can do all things through Christ Jesus who strengthens me. There is nothing that we're going to do apart from the Lord. And when the Lord has been the one who prepared the good works, who empowers us with his Holy Spirit, who has you know, equipped us thoroughly with his word to do those good works, guess what? When he's the one planning the works, preparing them for us, when he's the one equipping us, and when he's the one empowering us, guess who gets the glory? He does. If somebody asked me when I was at Lowe's to move a pallet of concrete, I didn't just like, you know, get over there and start putting my shoulder into it. I hopped onto a piece of equipment provided by Lowe's that is able to move a pallet of concrete. And I, was, I had the right to do that because I had been trained, I had been uh, certified, it was Lowe's equipment, but they gave me the right to use it. And, you know, moving that, praise the Lowe's for giving me the, the equipment I needed to do the work of Lowe's, right? In our relationship with the Lord, the Lord gets the praise because he's the one who's made us able to do the work. Notice what he says about when we receive the grace, that it's by that that we may be able to acceptably serve the Lord. If you think you can serve your way into acceptance, you've got it backwards. You can serve because you have been accepted, because of grace. They were in danger of leaving this grace to go do some good works for God. That's the danger that they were in. We can have this wrong thought process ourselves too, but the command here is to let us have grace. Looking carefully, lest anyone fall short of that grace. We can live a life that is pleasing to him because of the grace that he's already had for us. If you're new in your relationship with the Lord, know that uh, pursuing peace, you may be aware, well aware of some of the sins in your life and that you know, you're working on that. That doesn't go away. You go find an old saint who's been walking with the Lord since they were three, and they'll tell you the sin that God's working on in their life. If they're still married, their spouse will tell you the sin that God is working on in their life. Uh, my spouse uh, encourages me daily to be more holy, and she pursues peace with me, and I pursue peace with her. God gave us each other so that we would be the primary instrument of sanctification in each other's life. If you're married to a believer, that's God's primary instrument because you know why? They see everything. When you're tired, when you're hungry, when you're, you're at the end of the day of, with all the kids all day, um, if you've had a rough day at work, they see you at each one of those moments. And by God's grace, he reveals these things so that we can deal with these things. If you're a mature believer, have you given up on dealing with it? Have you tried to hide hurt? If you're hiding that hurt, I want you to think of that chocolate milk in my desk. <laughs> Don't. It stinks. Everybody's going to know. 
it's not helpful to you. In fact, the other person may not even be around anymore in some way, form, or another. But that hurt is not just hurting you, it's affecting those around you. The forgiveness that we receive from Christ enables us to forgive those who sin against us. The grace that is sufficient for us is sufficient for them through us. If you're not a believer here this morning, you cannot see God without holiness. And there is no good work you can do to become holy. But the good news is that God has done that work. The Bible says that if we confess with our mouth and believe in our hearts that Jesus died on the cross for our sins and that God raised him from the dead, the Bible says we shall be saved. And it's not a work that we do, it's the work that he's done. And just us saying to the Lord, we receive the Lord in his words. Lord, you said this was sin and it is sin. You said he is the Savior and he is the Savior. And I don't want to pay the price for my sins if he's already done it. I want to receive that forgiveness. We can be forgiven because he has paid the price. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word, which tells us, Lord, uh, what is good and what is godly and what is eternal. God, uh, we thank you for the fresh reminder to pursue peace and to pursue holiness. Lord, help us to value uh, the heavenly and earthly things. Uh, uh, sorry, the heavenly and eternal things. Lord, help us not to be distracted by the earthly and temporary, no, no matter how shiny and sparkly they are or pleasurable for seasons that they may be. Help us to listen to you when you speak, even if you speak through a brother or sister who wants to pursue peace with us. Lord, let us have the grace that you want us to have, the grace that you give to us. There was no good work that we did. We, we can be saved because of your grace. Lord, if we do know you, Lord, I pray that we would be doing the work that you've created us to do. Lord, that when, when we do those good works before men, that, Lord, they would see that, they would see us, and they would glorify you. They're like, I know that guy. God's at work in him. Lord, and even when it's not possible to live at peace, we pray that there would be forgiveness in our hearts, that we would give no place to the devil. Lord, that the hurts that some of us have been nursing for days or years, Lord, that today would be the day that we give them to you, that the forgiveness that we already have received from you would be expressed through us that even as we have been forgiven, we would forgive. Lord, we ask that uh, you would be with us uh, this week, Lord, that you would encourage us to encourage one another. Lord, I pray for each husband and wife, Lord, that uh, their relationship would glorify and honor you. Lord, I pray for each parent, Lord, that you would give them wisdom beyond our years, Father. Lord, that we would... Uh, train our children in the fear and the admonition of the Lord. I pray for each employee who's here, who's going to work, Lord, that they wouldn't work with eye service, but as unto the Lord. Lord, that that would be what glorifies you in heaven, or that they work as if you're watching. 
Lord, we pray that you would fill us with your spirit afresh. Lord, we thank you that our relationship with you is based on grace. Lord, and that your grace is sufficient for us. It's made perfect in weakness. What joy that gives us. We pray these things in Jesus' name.